ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. We welcome you to Gospel Dynamite, a Christian broadcast dedicated to the salvation of the lost and the revival of God's people. I'm Alan Mashburn, your Bible teacher and the pastor of Asbury Baptist Church, located at 218 Asbury Church Road in Seagrove, North Carolina. We invite you to visit our church at 10 a.m. on Sunday mornings and Wednesday evenings at 7 o'clock. On Sunday evenings, we provide online services which can be viewed on gospeldynamite.org. Now please join me in the study of the Word of God. You're listening to Gospel Dynamite. Thank you for joining us. I invite you to take your Bible, turn with us to Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11, as we continue our study concerning the seven churches of the Revelation. Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. The Bible says, And unto the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things saith the first and the last, which was dead and is alive. I know thy works and tribulation and poverty, but thou art rich, and I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that ye may be tried, and ye shall have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. He that overcometh shall not be hurt of the second death. The city of Smyrna was located some 35 miles north of Ephesus. It was a prosperous city with a population of over 100,000 people in John's day. That location has been inhabited for over 3,000 years, and the city was destroyed by a massive earthquake a few years before the birth of our Savior. But the city was rebuilt, and it thrived. In the city, it possessed a safe harbor where ships from all over the world came to buy and sell goods. It was called the Crown City because it was surrounded by hills that resembled a crown. It was also called the Flower of Asia. When the city chose a motto to be imprinted on their coinage, they chose the phrase, First in Asia in size and beauty. Now, several characteristics made the city very special in its day. First, it was famous for the production of myrrh. Now, that substance came from a shrub-like tree that produced a bitter gum. And when the leaves of this tree were crushed, they exuded a very fragrant odor. Myrrh was used as a fragrance by the living and an embalming agent for the dead. Of course, we know that myrrh was mentioned in association with the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus in Matthew 2 and Mark chapter 15, as well as John chapter 19. The word myrrh means bitter, and it came to be associated with suffering and death. Now, among the many other factors that made the city of Smyrna special, it also included the fact that it was a very planned city. Most cities of that day just sprang up without design, but Smyrna and its streets were planned down to the very last detail. It was a very religious city with many temples dedicated to the pantheon of gods and goddesses that they worshipped. 
There were temples dedicated to Zeus and Apollo and Aphrodite, many others. In fact, there was a street that was paved with gold that ran from the temple of Zeus to the temple of Cybele. And when pagan religions dominated the life of Smyrna, there was also a thriving Jewish community there as well. Now, Smyrna was a free city. They governed themselves, but they intensely uh, were loyal to Rome. On one occasion, the citizens of Smyrna stripped the very clothing off their backs and sent it along with all the food that they could find to Roman soldiers who were cold and hungry on the battlefield. And in this beautiful, wealthy, pagan city, there existed a struggling Christian community. And the church in Ephesus was undergoing intense and withering persecution. The Lord Jesus comes to them with a word of comfort for their dark days that they're encountering. He tells them that even though they appear to be so weak and so poor, they are in fact rich beyond imagination. Prophetically, the church pictures the terrible persecution inflicted upon the believers by the Roman emperors between the years 100 and 300 A.D. Practically and personally, there is a word here for everyone who has ever or will ever suffer for Jesus' sake. In verses 9 and 10, I would have you see that Smyrna was a crushed church. Now, it's easy to see that this church was going through intense problems because of their testimony for the Lord Jesus. They were letting their light shine in a dark world, and they were being persecuted for it. And I want you to notice how they were being crushed. They were facing persecution. The word tribulation there means pressure. It was used in that day to refer to a crushing uh, an object under the weight of very heavy stones. The word tribulation comes from the Latin word tribulum, and it refers to the stone wheels that were used to crush wheat and to separate the kernel from the shell. Now, the church was paying the price for their allegiance to Christ. The pressure was on, and they were suffering. Now, this persecution did not come from the pagans in Smyrna alone. Verse 9 tells us that they were also suffering at the hands of the Jews. The Jews in Smyrna joined hands with the idolaters in that city to defeat and to destroy the Christians by whatever means necessary. Jesus calls them the synagogue of Satan and accuses them of blasphemy or we could say slander in today's vernacular, against these believers. Now, why did the people of Smyrna hate the believers so much? Well, there are several reasons. First, I'd point out the Jews and the pagans accused the Christians of cannibalism. Christians kept communion, and part of that observance was eating the bread and drinking from the cup. And these represented the broken body and the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ as described in 1 Corinthians 11, verses 24 and 26. And secondly, when the Christians gathered, they would often hold what, what they called agape feast or love feast. These love feasts were nothing but times of fellowship where believers enjoyed one another's company. The pagans, however, accused the Christians of engaging in orgies. Thirdly, the Christians were hated because of their beliefs and practices. Often, it would often split families. And that's what Jesus said would happen in Matthew chapter 10, verses 34 through 36. Thus, Christians were accused of being anti-family. A fourth reason I would give you, 
is that Christians were accused of being atheists because they did not worship the many gods of the pagans and because they used no statues or icons in their own worship. And so any natural disasters, other, any other calamities were blamed on the Christians for incurring the wrath of the gods. And finally, a fifth reason I would give you is that Christians were accused of being political enemies of Rome because they refused to say Caesar is Lord. Every Roman citizen was required to do that every year, and to fail to do so brought severe punishment and even death. They didn't only face persecution, they faced poverty. The word speaks of being absolutely destitute here. They were denied jobs. They were denied promotions because of their testimony. And these people had nothing in a city that possessed everything. Imagine how Satan must have mocked these people as they passed the ornate temples and walked down the golden streets. Surely he would say, serving Jesus has cost you everything. And you just hear him whisper to them in their mind, look at you, you're nothing, you have nothing, give up on this Jesus. You're starving. Deny him and prosper. But not only did they face poverty, but they faced prison. In verse 10, Jesus tells them that there is more trouble ahead. They're going to face more persecution. In fact, the 10 days mentioned here might refer to the 10 persecutions the Christians suffered under the Romans. Or it might simply mean that they, uh, their persecution would be severe, but it would be brief. Either way, they're informed that more pain, more suffering is coming their way. Now, prison in that day was nothing, nothing like it is today. When people went to prison under the Roman system, they did not receive a free college education. They did not learn a skill. They did not spend their days writing and reading books or watching television. When a person went to prison, in those days, it was to await execution. The only way you got out was to die. And death was usually a horrible event. You might be killed by a sword. You might be burned alive, thrown to wild animals, or any of the dozens of other cruel methods of torture and torment that they had devised. That was a suffering congregation here, the Church of Smyrna. Now, one example of their suffering comes to us from history. Just a few years after they received this letter in 155 A.D., the bishop of the church of Smyrna, a man by the name of Polycarp, who was a, dis a disciple, a learner, a student of John, the beloved disciple, was martyred for Christ. This man was arrested at the request of an angry mob that cried, Away with the atheist! Let Polycarp be sought out! The old preacher, he was 86 years of age at the time. He was given the opportunity to renounce Jesus Christ. The magistrate, who did not want to see the old man die, said, What harm is there in saying, Lord Caesar? But Polycarp refused. When they entered the stadium where the executions would take place, they tried again, saying, Swear by the fortune of Caesar. Repent and say away with the atheist. Polycarp fixed his gaze on the crowd and he waved his arms at them and said away with the atheist. 
The magistrate again attempted to get Polycarp to renounce his faith and said, Swear, and I will set thee at liberty. Reproach Christ. To that the old man cried, Eighty and six years have I served him, and he never did me any injury. How then can I blaspheme my king and my savior? After a few more attempts to get the old preacher to renounce Jesus, they led him away to the stake to burn him alive. They were about to nail him to the post, and Polycarp said, Leave me as I am, for he that giveth me strength to endure the fire will also enable me without your securing me by nails to remain without moving in the pile. So they left him loosely bound, and they lit the fire. And as the flames rose around him, he was heard to pray and rejoice in Jesus. He died for his faith, and in doing so, he left an indelible imprint on the fabric of time. Let me just make a statement here. Everyone who will live a holy, separated, dedicated life for Jesus Christ in any generation is going to face persecution, according to 2 Timothy 3 and verse 12. This should not shock us, nor should it surprise us. Jesus said it would be this way in John chapter 15, Mark chapter 13, and John chapter 16 as well. The reason why the world hates the believer today is the same reason the world hated the believers then. They used all the excuses that I mentioned earlier, but the people of Smyrna hated the believers for just one reason, because they loved the Lord Jesus Christ. Folks, that is why the world hates us right now. That is why the liberals hate us. That is why the homosexuals and the lesbian crowd and the abortion lobby and the rest of the perverts and the infidels and the infrahels and all the filth. That is why the liquor and the drug crowd hate us. That's why the Muslim and the Jew and the religionists hate fundamental believers who believe the Bible and just simply love Jesus. They hate us because we tell them there is one way to God and that his name is Jesus Christ. They hate us because we tell them that they're headed to hell unless they repent. They hate us because we will not join them, confirm them, or conform to their abominations. They hate us because we're different. We're intolerant and we're not afraid to say so. They hate us today, but things are just going to get worse. It used to cost something to name the name of Jesus. Now folks can call themselves Christian and do what the world around them is doing. I think the day is coming when the fires of persecution will again burn around us. And I think God will use the hatred of humanity against his son Jesus to purify the, the bride of Christ before she's taken home to glory. I'm not a prophet of doom, but I think there's some difficult days ahead for the faithful people of God. Smyrna was a crushed church. But verse 9 also tells us that Smyrna was a consistent church. Even though they were paying a harsh price for their faithful love and service to the Lord Jesus, these people did not back up from their profession. They stayed the course and they demonstrated a faithful testimony for the glory of God. Remember, Smyrna was famous for myrrh. 
It was only when the leaves of the tree were crushed that their fragrance would be released. These people were being crushed under the terrible and terrifying pressure of persecution. They were releasing the fragrance of love and faithfulness to Christ in the atmosphere of Smyrna. Jesus sent seven letters to seven different churches. Five of the seven churches received words of rebuke and correction. Only this church and the church of Philadelphia received no corrective words. The Lord had been observing their walk, and he was pleased. They were consistent. If he were to comment on our church, would he have any words of correction for us? Would he come to us with a positive word of encouragement? That's something to ask us. It's a, it's a daunting question. But they also had a powerful testimony. Jesus says to them, I know thy works. The word works refers to that which the business which occupies a person's life. In spite of all the darkness around them, these people continued to be a light for Christ in the midst of an ever-darkening world, and they were not to be intimidated by their enemies. They were not frightened by the hatred of their opponents. They proved that they were genuine and that their faith was real by the way they carried themselves in that society. Their testimony was powerful because they stayed the course and they stuck to the task for the glory of God. They were a consistent church. Now we have to ask the question, to ourselves. What do our works say about us as a church? What do our works say about us as an individual in a world like ours where darkness, wickedness, and opposition to our way of life abounds? There's a tendency to get back of that message to tone things down. The church has withdrawn from the public square. They have withdrawn from the public school. They have withdrawn from the public arena. And we've moved within the walls of our building where we're safe from the critics and from the enemies of truth. What we fail to see is that we cannot impact the world if we never confront the world. If our message is maintained within the walls of our churches and never shared with a lost and dying world, we will never, never make a difference for the glory of our Lord. We must step out of our comfort zone and re-enter the world with the message of salvation. We need to publicly proclaim without fear the saving gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. If we would be a powerful witness for the Lord Jesus, then we must live out our faith. We must live out our profession of faith, regardless of the personal or public cost. And those men who walked with Jesus paid a terrible price for their faith. Every one of the disciples, with the exception of John, died a horrible death for their testimony. And down through the years, some 70 million believers have died for their faith in Jesus Christ. And every year, some 300,000 believers are martyred for their faith. One day, it may be our turn to stand for Christ. And if that day comes, I wonder, are we ready? Are we ready to die if necessary? Are we prepared to live out a powerful testimony for him? Smyrna was not only a crushed church, a consistent church, but in verses 8 through 11, Smyrna was a comforted church. Verse 9, they had an interest in heaven. The Bible says, Jesus says this, I know thy works. The Lord of glory has taken a personal interest in the church in Smyrna. The word know means to know by experience. Jesus is saying, I know you folks. I know you're having it tough. 
I know that you need to know that I am in this with you and I experience everything that you do. And when they do it to you, they do it to me. He's telling them that what they're doing is bigger than who they are. He's telling them that Satan is using the evil people of Smyrna to attack Jesus through his church. And he just wants them to know that they're not alone in their struggle. Now, I don't know about you, but that encourages me. I'm glad that our Lord is with us every step of the way. When we're attacked, he knows all about it because it touches him too. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15. Thank God he can help us weather the storms and endure the pain. He's always there to help his suffering saints. Verse 8, they had the involvement of heaven. When Jesus comes to this church, he comes as the first and the last. He comes as he which was dead and is alive. If you remember from chapter 1 in Revelation, the title first and last identifies Jesus as the I Am. It labels him as the one who is in control of all things. The people in this church in Smyrna might have thought things were out of control, but they were in the hand of God. My friend, Jesus Christ is still sovereign. You let the devil do whatever he pleases, he controls nothing. God is the one who controls everything. He calls the shots and he lets Satan have what liberty he exercises against the people of God. But in reality, he's a chained lion and that's it. The statement which was dead and is alive identifies Jesus as the one who has been there all along. He's telling these saints that he knows what they are facing because he's already faced it. The people hated him. They persecuted him. They crucified him. They poured out all of their wrath, hatred, and anger upon him. And he prevailed. And since he is the one who's been through all the trials and conquered them all, he's able to help his people when they face the fires of persecution and hatred. Now, none of us, none of us know what we will be called on to face before we leave this world behind. But we have the blessed assurance that no matter what comes our way, our Lord has already been there. He has already secured the victory for us. And the Bible says in Romans chapter 8 and verse 37, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. Yes, we are. Reminds me of an illustration. Many hundreds of years ago in the days when men were just beginning to take to the seas, their maps did not show the world as we know it today. Their maps were only able to represent the places man had already been, that he'd already sailed. In the places where men had never been before, in those unexplored areas, unknown areas, they would write on their maps, here be dragons. And it indicated that it was unknown and that they didn't know what was there. Well, when you and I are voyaging on the seas of life, And when you come to the spots where you've never been before, when you come to those unknown places in life and cross the map of your life, you can write this. Here is Jesus. Wherever you go, Jesus Christ has been there. And so to this church of Smyrna, the Lord says, I want to encourage you with my person. I am the first and the last. I was dead. I'm alive forevermore. My friend, they also had their investment in heaven. Verse 9, Jesus says, I know thy poverty, but thou art rich. They were poor beyond belief, but Jesus said they were rich. They may have lacked this world's goods, but their faith and their faithful display of their testimony had purchased them treasures in heaven. They were poor here, but they were rich over there. 
The world may have taken everything that they had down here, but they had treasures on the other side that the enemy knew not of and could not reach. These people had nothing, but yet they possessed everything. There was a believer who was arrested during these same terrible days of tribulation, and they attempted to threaten him to to cause him to recant his faith in Christ. So they said to him, if you do not recant your faith, we're going to banish you. And the Christian said, do what you will with me, because my Jesus said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. The magistrate then said, we'll take all of your property and all your possessions away. The faithful servant said, no, you can't do that either. My treasures are laid up in heaven where no human hand can touch them. The magistrate then said, if you do not renounce Jesus Christ, we will put you to death. He said, you can't do that either. I've been dead with Jesus for 40 years. My life is hid with him, Christ in God, and you can't touch it. Now, friend, the day may come when this world will take us and our property. The day may come when they threaten us to death. The day may come when our testimony becomes a death sentence in this world. If that day ever comes, take comfort in this, that Jesus Christ is God and he has laid up our treasure in heaven. Therefore, do as Jesus said, be thou faithful unto death, in verse 10. Verses 10 and 11, they had their inheritance in heaven. Their faith had purchased for them more than just a testimony here. And Jesus is telling them that while they may lose it all here, they might even lose their lives, but they will live forever over there. They may endure hell on earth for a while, but there will be no hell for them in eternity. And he promises them a crown of life. The word crown of life refers to the Stephanos crown or the laurel crown that was given to victors in the ancient Greek games. You see, this church might have looked like a bunch of losers to the world around them, but in reality they were mighty victors waging spiritual warfare in the name of Jesus Christ. And the day would come when they and their faith would be vindicated. The lost man will die twice. He will live without God in this world, and he will die. After death, he will go to hell. Then he will stand before the Lord at the great white throne judgment, and he will be sentenced to the lake of fire for all eternity. That is the second death. The saints of God need never fear that happening to them. They pass from death unto life, John 5 and verse 24. Their faith has brought them eternal life and they will be crowned with glory and victory when they arrive home. Folks, it may look bad down here before you leave this world. There may be trials. There may be tribulation. There may be pain. There may be persecution. But I want you to know that at the end of the road, we're going to be home with Jesus Christ. So press on, press on, press on to Jesus God. Thank you for listening to our broadcast today. We trust it's been a blessing. Trust you'll have a great week in the Lord. Log on to our website, gospeldynamite.org, and let us know if you've accepted Christ or this message has helped you. God bless you, and we trust you have a great day in the Lord.